Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 14 um, or on your devices. That's where we're going to be today. And we are wrapping up today a series that we've been in called The Invitational Life. And thus far in this series, we have looked at a number of invitations that God has placed on our lives. We have talked about the fact that we have been invited to know God, which considering who God is, is one of the most remarkable things that we could say, that he desires to be in relationship with us and desires to be known by us. We have been invited to become like Jesus by following him and by seeking to emulate him in our lives. And we have been invited to become a holy people and a royal priesthood, a nation of priests who are uh, essentially ambassadors of the kingdom of God here on earth. But today, in light of those invitations, we're going to shift our focus a little bit to the invitation that we, as the body of Christ, those of us who are believers, to the invitation that we should be placing on the lives of others. And the big question for us today is, what are you inviting the people around you to do? What are you inviting the people around you to do? And before we jump into our text, I just want to go ahead and say that I believe the answer to that question, what are you inviting the people around you to do, should, and hopefully we can agree on this, it should be shaped by the invitation that Jesus placed on the lives of those around him during his time on earth. Remember, we are invited to be like Christ. We are invited to emulate Jesus in our lives. So the invitation that we are extending to our kids or to our coworkers or to our neighbors should be no different than the invitations that Jesus has laid on us. I think as we look back over the last hundred years, one of the greatest inviters in American Christianity was this guy named Billy Graham, who we are all familiar with. Billy Graham said that there were essentially three master categories of invitation that Jesus extended to the world. And there are certainly more things that Jesus has called us to be and to do, but, but many of those things fall into these three kind of master categories of invitation. Billy Graham said the first we find in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, hopefully you realize as we read that, that Jesus wasn't simply talking about physical rest here. He isn't just saying, come to me if you worked an extra shift today and I'm going to give you rest. I will make you less tired. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. Eugene Peterson says that this is Jesus's invitation to come to him and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. In many ways, this is no different from Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you want freedom from sin, if you want hope, if you want a life that's outside of this broken world, if you want to stop pursuing things that ultimately don't satisfy you and don't ultimately meet your needs, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the only way. I am the truth. 
you will only find those things in me. Follow me and you will learn the unforced rhythms of my grace poured out upon you. Follow me and you will find freedom from your worry and your fear and your anxiety. Follow me and discover abundant, real life in the way that God originally intended for it to be. Follow me and find rest for your soul. The second invitation we find in Mark chapter 1 verse 17 And Jesus said to them, them being his new disciples, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So you've found new life in me. You've found forgiveness in me. You have found rest in me. Now follow me and let me teach you how to call others to follow me. So this is the call to be disciples of Jesus or or students of Jesus who make more students of Jesus. This call is significant because it essentially bookended the ministry of Jesus. If Jesus' ministry kind of begins with what we just read, with him calling these people to follow him and saying, I will make you fishers of men, then Jesus' ministry on earth effectively ends with him saying, now go to the nations and fish for men. Right? So, so this, this idea bookends his time here on earth. And let me just remind us that this process of discipleship, this process of learning Christ, of becoming more like Jesus, it begins with the invitation to follow him. It begins with this invitation to make him your teacher, to make him your rabbi. And this is what we would call evangelism. But for what it's worth, Jesus didn't really use those categories. He didn't talk about evangelism or or sharing the gospel as like one thing over here and then discipleship as this other thing over here, as if those were two completely separate things. No, No, those two things were interconnected for Jesus. And the example of him is that discipleship begins with the invitation to follow him. That's where it starts. Come with me, right? Come alongside me. Come learn from me. And so the truth for us is that if we aren't willing to do the work of evangelism... If, if we aren't willing to go and, and fish for men, if we aren't willing to go and, and, and to call people to follow Jesus, then we shouldn't be surprised when we don't have any disciples to disciple. If we aren't willing to call people around us to follow Jesus, then real discipleship probably won't happen. Luke uh, and Jason went to an event this past week with the Excel Church Planning Network, which we are a part of as a church and This was an assessment event where new potential church planters come in and they're trying to raise money. They're trying to get their new churches off the ground. Church planters come in and they're assessed by the organization to just see, hey, what are your gifts? Um, Do we affirm that this is something God's calling you to do? Do we see this longing within you? And one of the questions Luke said that these guys are asked as a part of the assessment is if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want to 
I want to learn to follow Jesus, or I want to follow Jesus, or can you, can you help me follow Jesus? They asked the question, if somebody came to you and said something like that, what would you say to them? And Luke said he was astounded this week by the fact that many of these potential church planners basically answered, I would tell them to come to my church. It's just like, is that it? Somebody comes to you and says, tell me about Jesus, or, or I want to follow Jesus, or what does it mean to follow Jesus? And, and your response to them is, hey, come to this event. When, when it should be, hey, let me tell you about who Jesus is. This person I'm in relationship with, this person who has changed my life, let's, let's at least start there. Hopefully I have something more for you than, hey, come to my church please invite people to church. But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, who is Jesus? Or tell me about Jesus. Or what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or how do I do that in my life? Please have something more for them than just, hey, come to this thing. Shouldn't we, those of us who are believers, shouldn't we be the people who are able to go, hey, let me, let me tell you what happened for me. Let me tell you what happened in my life. And this leads us to the third invitation we find in John fifteen four, which is this, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides or remains in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And this one is critical because you can come to Jesus, you can find rest from sin and death, you can learn the ways of Jesus as a disciple, you can embrace the fact that he has sent you to make more disciples, but guess what? You still need Jesus. That never goes away. You don't outgrow Jesus. Unless you abide in the vine, you, you can't do anything. That's, that's what we just read. Unless you abide, unless you remain in Christ, unless you stay connected, unless you continue to trust in Jesus, then nothing's going to happen. And, and, and this is huge. So, so what are we inviting the people around us to do? Well, if, if as followers of Jesus, if we're seeking to emulate the way of Jesus, as we've said, then these are our three major invitations. Quit chasing the things of this world that don't satisfy. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel and experience grace through Christ. Become a student of Jesus, seeking to model or pattern your life after his and then go fish for men then go seek to bring more students into the mix and then third recognize that maturity isn't about doing more but instead about abiding more trusting more because you can't do anything on your own And man, in this season where we've been working to launch Covenant Shreveport, I'm learning over and over and over again that I can't just manufacture good fruit. I don't know if you've been there before. If you haven't, I encourage you to go try to plant a church. <laughs> because what you quickly realize, what I'm reminded of almost daily is that if, if, if this is going to happen, it's going to be because God has done it. Not because we've done anything. Not because we were smart enough, 
or we raised enough money, or we had the right strategy, or we had the right leaders on the team. No, no, no. If, if anything is going to happen, it's going to be because God has done it. And, and, and here's what I've learned in this season. I am terrible at abiding. I am terrible at it. Like, I, I want to make things happen. And, and I want glory for myself. Like, like I want to be s- smart enough or clever enough to put the right process in place that brings something to fruition. And then I want people to look at me and go, man, where did you come up with that? Like in my heart of hearts, if I'm being totally honest, man, there is pride at the center of all of that. I struggle to just go, man, I can do nothing without Christ. And also the inverse, which is to say I can do all things through Christ. Somehow both of those things are true. I don't want God's timing. I want it now. But the beauty of the way that God has designed this is that he has designed it in such a way where he gets the glory. Not us. Because he is ultimately the one who produces fruit through us. So I want you this morning to hold those invitations in your mind. And and let's look at our primary text today in Luke 14. And if you would, could we stand together this morning as we read this passage? Luke 14, we're going to begin in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So real quick, let me give a little context for this parable. This is actually the last in a series of things that Jesus does uh, in the home of a Pharisee on a Saturday, on the Sabbath. Uh, This all begins at the start of chapter 14 with Jesus very boldly or brashly healing a man outside of this Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. And and Jesus kind of heals this guy in front of them and and, and then basically says, so what are you going to do about it? Right? He, he is like intentionally here uh, provoking them and intentionally being confrontational with this group of men. They go into the house and Jesus, Jesus notices the entitlement mentality of these men because they're all taking places of honor around the table. 
And so he says to them in verse 11, and I think this verse is very much kind of a keystone for this whole section of scripture. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he tells the man who is the host, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends, meaning all these guys, who will repay you by inviting you to their parties. Instead, invite those who can't repay you by inviting the poor and the blind and the lame. And if you do that, you will be blessed, he says. So the moral of this whole story is if if you are a Pharisee, don't invite Jesus to your party, right? Because he's just going to come in and start calling you out. And that's exactly what happens here. But he wraps this whole thing up with this very confrontational exchange uh, that we just read, this parable of the great banquet. And that's where I want to camp out in our remaining time. So, so there is like this kind of macro big picture understanding of this parable that relates directly to Jesus' time and to the men that he was talking to. Notice in the parable that the master extends two invitations. So the first invitation is, hey, I'm going to throw a party or I'm going to throw a banquet. So he puts that out there to his invitees. This is coming. It's, it's not ready right now, but it's going to be happening in the future and you're invited. The second invitation is the time has come. The banquet is ready. Come, come to the banquet right now. We're ready to go. And yet, even though people knew the banquet was coming, even though they had plenty of time to prepare and to plan, they had plenty of time also to, to like say, hey, I'm not coming. When the time comes for the banquet, the invitees give a bunch of excuses for not attending. And this is exactly what Jesus experienced in his time. For hundreds of years before the time of Christ, God spoke through the prophets saying that a Messiah was coming. He gave very specific details about the fact that the Messiah was coming and whose lineage he would come through. And yet, when Jesus arrived as Messiah, people did not receive him as such. They did not embrace him as Lord. They did not embrace him as Savior. Instead, they called him a drunk and a blasphemer and a friend of sinners, and they killed him. So, God the Father sent out his initial invitation through the prophets. The banquet is being prepared. It it is coming. Jesus arrives. The banquet is ready. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. And yet the people who were invited, the people of God, the Jews, largely do not attend. As John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And the parable could easily end there, couldn't it? But it doesn't. Instead, here's what happens next. The master becomes enraged, and he sends out his servants to bring in the poor and the blind and the lame, but, but there is still room in the house. So the servants are sent out again to all people and are instructed to, quote, compel them to come in. The definition of compel is to urge forcefully or irresistibly. So this wasn't go out again and politely ask people to come to the banquet. No, it was go out and forcefully urge people 
everywhere to come in. And so, so with that in mind, here's the tendency of people who teach this parable. What we want to say is thank God that even though the original invitees rejected the banquet, thank God that he didn't stop there, but that he instead extended the invitation to everyone. So, so even though the Jews largely rejected Christ, the disciples of Jesus didn't go, oh, well, no one wants to hear this. No, no, no. What did they do? They started going to the Gentiles who largely welcomed the gospel of Jesus and received it with great joy. And so it's very easy for us to look at this and say, thank God that the master sent out his servants into the highways and the hedges to compel people to come in. But, but there's more to this here because this is no normal banquet. This isn't a banquet that you attend and then just go home and everything goes back to normal. This is a banquet that changes you. The New Testament teaches two paradoxical truths. One is that by accepting Jesus's invitation, you become a son or daughter of the master. Isn't that incredible? That because of what Christ has done for us, that we actually are invited into the kingdom of God, not as a foreigner, not as a guest, but as a beloved son or daughter of the master. But the New Testament also teaches that by accepting Christ's invitation, that you become like a servant to the master. So again, both of those things are true. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are now a beloved child of the king and you have been sent out as a servant of the king to compel people to come in because there is still room. But here's the problem. Most of us are not doing that. Most of us are not compelling people to come in. Most of us are not fishing for men. Most of us are not extending the invitation. Just about every poll or statistic that you can find on the state of evangelism in America will tell you that this is true. Even if you have been saved, even if you know that is your responsibility, even if you know it's what God has called you to, even if you know how to do it, even if you feel comfortable articulating the truths of the gospel, most of us don't. In fact, research shows that those of us who are in the middle class are actually the least likely to share our faith with other people. So why is this? Why don't you share your faith? Why don't I share my faith when I know that I should? And it's not like you never have, right? But why is it not a major part of your life? If your life has been changed by Christ, if you have in effect been invited to and accepted the invitation to the banquet and become a son or daughter of the king and become a servant of the king, then why is this not a more significant part of your life? And, and I think we can just, in a sense, make our list, can't we? Why don't you do it? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I have a fear of being rejected or maybe I... I don't feel like I know enough to really talk to people about Jesus. Or maybe 
I haven't been trained to do it, or maybe I, I don't know a lot of lost people. Most everybody around me kind of seems to go to church, or maybe I don't want to hurt the relationships around me. But here's the irony of this to me as I was reflecting on this passage this week. Here's the irony of that list and, 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 and the other things that we could add to this list. It sounds a lot like, oh, I just bought a field and I need to go see it. Please have me excused. It sounds a lot like I just bought a bunch of oxen and I need to go see them. Please have me excused. I just got married. So please have me excused. So here's what I want to throw out to us in these last few minutes. I think... I think we need to reshape the way that we approach evangelism in our lives because for those of us who have come up in the church, when we talk about evangelism, most of us probably think of a very specific thing, which maybe we think of as being outdated or corny or maybe even scary. And what I'm talking about is that, that kind of con- uh, confrontational style of evangelism where where you seek to engage random people by just knocking on their door or walking up to them at the restaurant or by handing out tracts. I was in Starbucks not long ago and a guy wearing snakeskin boots walked up to me and handed me a track and walked out the door. Didn't say a word to me. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of evangelism. I don't know. Years ago in seminary, I was required to take a class called Contemporary Evangelism. And that was essentially the method that I was taught in that class. I had a professor whose perspective was, if you walk into a 7-Eleven and you leave having not shared the gospel with the guy behind the counter, you are a joke of a Christian. Some of us have been through old school evangelism training courses and have effectively been traumatized by being sent out in teams to knock on random people's doors and to try to get into their living room and sit down and say, hey, can I, can I tell you about Jesus? Or you've been taught these kind of gimmicky turns of phrase or you've been taught these ways to try to weasel your way into a conversation with people and it feels unnatural to you, it feels strange to you. I know plenty of people who have been through those kinds of things before and I'm surprised that they still even go to church, honestly. So if that's what you think of when you think of evangelism, I I want you this morning to try as best as possible to put that out of your mind. And and I just want to suggest a different framework for you. Not that those things are sinful or wholly wrong or not that they have never been effective. But I want to try to suggest a little bit of a different framework for you. First of all, We have to invest in relationships with lost people. So, so let's just start there. We all know lost people. Whether you think you do or don't, you may not be friends with them, but you know people who don't know Jesus. You have family members who don't know Jesus. You have people you went to college with who don't know Jesus. You have coworkers. You have parents in your kids' classes who don't know Jesus. You have people that you are around on a regular basis who are lost. And, and it's possible that you've actually separated yourself from them and have not pursued relationship with them precisely because they are not believers. That's a real thing. People do that all the time. That's kind of our tribal tendency, by the way. 
We want to be with the people who think like us and dress like us and do what we do. We want to be with people who look at the world the same way. And yet we are following a master who was called a friend of sinners because he was a friend of sinners. They weren't lying about him. He actually spent a lot of his time with people who were pagans. So we, as followers of Jesus, should be deserving of the same title. By intentionally investing in growing relationships with people who don't know Christ. Secondly, we have to seek out ways to bless the people that we are in relationship with. I saw a story this week about uh, comedian Patton Oswalt, who's an atheist. And uh, he was attacked online, you know, by, by some, some random guy, like people do online. He's just a celebrity that somebody said some negative things about on the internet. And so he goes to this guy's Facebook page, the guy that attacked him. He goes to this guy's Facebook page, and what he learns when he gets there is that this guy's actually been really ill for a period of time. He's been in the hospital. Um, he's got a big stack of medical bills. And uh, he's actually started a fundraiser to try to help get his medical bills paid for. And so rather than lashing back against this guy on his Facebook page, Patton Oswalt contributed $2,000 to this guy's fundraiser and then pushed it out to all of his followers, and they wound up raising over $30,000 for this guy who attacked him on the Internet. And I read that, and, 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 and the guy's response to this was, he, guess what? He was overwhelmed. He couldn't believe that these people had done this for him. And I thought, man, these people who don't know Jesus are doing Jesus better than we are. We have to intentionally seek to make the lives of people around us better in the name of Christ. This is actually how Christianity spread so rapidly in Europe. Uh, the Roman emperor Julian, who was an emperor in the 300s, uh, was an opponent of Christianity. Uh, the empire was moving towards uh, being a Christian empire. and He was trying to make it a pagan empire again. And he explained in a letter that he wrote that Christianity had especially been advanced through, quote, the loving service rendered to strangers, and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal, he said, that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render to them. So the Christians are growing in number because they're legitimately presenting a better way. Christians in Europe during this period of time were known for their care for the dead. As they built churches around Europe, they would also build cemeteries. And when people who didn't know Christ or who weren't affiliated with the church would die, their families would come to the church and say, can you help us? Can you help us bury our loved one? And the church became known for being willing to take care of everyone, right? To serve everyone. What a novel concept. No, it's just, it's just following Jesus, isn't it? It's just living in the way that Jesus lived. It's just seeking to emulate Jesus. I would call this giving people foretastes of the kingdom of heaven. As believers, as ambassadors of this kingdom, we should be intent on showing everyone the values of the kingdom. Showing people what the kingdom is like. Not just taking care of our own, 
but flagrantly serving the lost as well, pouring out our lives for the lost. Because Jesus poured out his life for us, even though we were sinners. And at the core of this, as I said earlier, is what Jesus says to these guys around this table, which is this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have to be in true, loving relationship not just with believers, but with all people. We need to seek out ways, not just to take care of our friends and our family and our church community, but we need to seek out ways to bless everyone around us and to meet needs. And then third, we have to tell our stories, telling our personal stories of Christ. That's perhaps the greatest tool in our tool belt. It's not going through some pre-scripted gospel presentation. Even though I'm not in any way negating the need for us to be fluent in the gospel, to be able to clearly articulate what Jesus has done for us. But we need to be able to weave that into our own story. Being able to declare the gospel within the arc of your personal narrative is deeply compelling. How has Jesus changed you? Like, like this is the basis of the concept of witnessing. Like to witness something or, or to talk about what you have seen means something has to have happened to you. If you are a witness to something, something has happened to you and you're talking about what has happened to you. This is the basis of of, of having a testimony, being able to share what Jesus has done in your life. And it doesn't have to be some crazy drama-filled story in order to be compelling. Everybody's story isn't crazy and drama-filled, but it is incredible and supernatural. So don't discount what Jesus has done in you. What is your story? So ultimately, here, here's what I'm hoping we take away from this. Evangelism shouldn't just be something you do here and there. It should be something that exudes from your life. It's not just one moment when you walk somebody through the Roman road. There is nothing wrong with that, of course. But our goal is making disciples. Our goal is not to just share a message and jet out the door. That's not what Jesus has called us to do. He has called us to be present and to seek to grow people up into him. And that begins by putting the invitation out there, doesn't it? And it could be that you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, just add it to my list, Weston. Just add it to the list of things that I have going on. Just one more thing I have to do. And can I, can I respectfully say to you that if that's how you're receiving this, then I, I think you may be missing the point. We aren't talking about something you add to your list. We're talking about something that you, you like weave throughout your life. And it could be that you need to restructure your life. 
so that this truly becomes the point of your life. It could be that you need to recalibrate your priorities to support this. Because I would say this really is the point. The point of your parenting is not simply for you to raise smart, respectful children that can get into a great college and be successful adults. The point of your parenting is to lead your children to the gospel. The point of your career is not simply that you would make a lot of money or close a lot of deals or whatever it is that you do and that you would build up a great retirement account and be able to maybe retire early so that you can do nothing. That's not the point of life, guys. If you believe in Jesus, that's not it. No, no, no. What we learn is that Jesus has actually given us gifts and talents and his desire is that we would be obedient to him. He has called each and every one of you into ministry and he is routing your paycheck, maybe not through a church, but through your employer. His desire is that you would serve him in obedience where you are and that in your work you would seek to glorify him. Everything else is secondary. If this is just another thing we add to our list, it could be you are bypassing like that very first invitation to come to Christ and find rest, to find rest for your soul, to find rest from the empty worldly things that you've been pursuing to find true, abundant life in him. If we aren't beginning there, if we aren't laying our cares on him, if we aren't seeking to give him our life, then more than likely we are trying to earn our salvation through good work. And you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do it. It is, it is a free gift. As I was looking at some statistics and research about evangelism in America in recent years, one of the most interesting statistics that I came across was this. For the vast majority of churches that are growing in America today, most of them are growing through what's called transfer growth. They're growing because Christians have left some other church and are now coming to this church. Most churches that are growing are not growing because people are coming to know Christ, conversion growth. So that didn't really surprise me, but the rate at which that is happening shocked me. It's happening at a rate of 19 to 1. So for every 19 people that start attending a church, there is only one who has come to know Christ for the first time and has begun following him within the context of that community. But for the churches that are actually reaching the lost, that are maybe seeing more unbelievers come to know Jesus than just people saying, hey, I like the goods and services at this church rather than the church I was going to, or I like the pastor at this church better than the church I was going to, or I like the kids' ministry better, or the student ministry better, whatever the case may be. Churches that are actually reaching people with the gospel and seeing them turn to Christ in faith. Those churches have placed an intentional focus on that. They don't just throw it out in a sermon once a year and remind everybody, hey, remember, we need to tell people about Jesus. No, 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 no. 
They hold it at the center of everything. We are seeking to make disciples as the body of Christ, and we cannot make disciples if we aren't calling people to follow Jesus. And that doesn't happen in a church program. That doesn't only happen from a stage on a Sunday morning. That happens when we all go out into our everyday lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit, equipped with the gospel, and we invite people, we compel people to follow Jesus. Why does that not get a room full of amens? My fear is it's because we just don't want to. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be a community of believers who are deeply concerned about the lostness that we see around us, that that would propel us out with a sense of urgency to lay the invitation of Jesus at the feet of those we encounter because the master has not closed the door to his house, has he? There's still room. Let's pray. Father, I'm moved this morning by the fact that in my own life, I have neglected this part of your mission. That there have been a host of times when I have not done what you have called me to do in relationships, in situations where I have not shared your truth, where I have not blessed other people in your name, where I have not sought to make other people's lives better because you have made my life better. Father, I pray you forgive me of that. And I pray that you would empower us all with your Holy Spirit and a deep and abiding sense of urgency to go and be disciples who make disciples by calling people to follow you in faith and by being willing to teach people everything that you've commanded us. May we leave here changed, not because of anything I've said, but because of what you have done and said. Give us eyes to see the people around us, Father, who need your hope, who need the rest that you can offer. And Father, may we as a people truly abide in you. May, may we trust you more next year than we do today. May we choose obedience on a daily basis. May we be willing to restructure our lives so that our lives can truly be centered on you and your gospel. Help us look more and more like Jesus as a people, Father. Grow us up and send us out for your glory. It's in your name. Amen.